0: Welcome to Cyber Context, featuring Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of SpiderOak. We're also joined today by Matt Erickson, the Vice President of Solutions. I'm Christian Whiten. Jonathan, uh, big news. Last week, uh, Russia invades Ukraine, and there is a cyber element both before and after the initial invasion. Uh, But maybe it's not what a lot of people expected. If we were expecting shock and awe, power plants going offline, uh, things blowing up because of Cyber activity. It didn't really happen. It seems that some uh, government websites, financial websites, ATMs were offline in Ukraine. Uh, There are some uh, cyber attacks, DDoS attacks, mainly it seems, that are targeted at Russia in retaliation, both perhaps from within Ukraine, but also from some keyboard warriors outside who are angry at what Russia has done. Were you surprised at all? And and what's your take on on what happened, uh, uh, at least so far? We're only about a week into this war, but so far.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think, yeah, I think that we've really seen different behavior than was generally predicted and expected. I think what we saw is we expected there to be a large cyber initiative, uh, you know, timed with the beginning of or prior to the physical invasion of Ukraine. And that's just not really what we saw. We have seen some attacks. There is a wiper malware that was very strategically placed on government systems. And I think this is really important to understand. It was different than NOPETA, no which was a worm um, that did mass damage across the globe, not just inside the Ukraine. Uh, and that it's that the wiper itself does is not a worm. And it is these machines were being compromised and the wiper is being dropped and these are targeting government systems. This makes a lot of sense from a tactical standpoint. We like to deny the adversary the ability to you know, to their IT systems that they use to uh, collaborate and communicate. And then we've also seen DDoS attacks against Biasat and I believe also Eurocom, another satellite provider that, that feeds data to the Ukraine. And this also makes a lot of sense. You really would like to deny the Ukraine the ability to communicate both, you know, because uh, you'd like to deny them the ability to to engage in information war and propaganda, as well as reduce their ability to organize um but what i think is interesting is that where there's certainly other things going on there's tons of stuff going on there are cyber russian cyber criminals saying they're going to hack anybody who takes sanctions against russia you have um an attack attributed to anonymous that completely exposed that organization and dumped years worth of their logs which has been incredibly fruitful and interesting to uh threat intelligence community um <laughs> uh, and there's just there's kind of madness going on there are you know, EV chargers in Russia that were made in the Ukraine uh, have firmware has been updated to say stop the war in the Ukraine and won't charge cars. You know, there's, there's just been all sorts of ancillary actions, but the core actions that we expected to see from Russia didn't really materialize. And I think that has to lead us to ask the question is, did the West or at least the the public sector in the West significantly overestimate the deep capabilities of the Russian cyber operatives. And I think that we may have been looking at the kind of capabilities that uh, the US government has demonstrated and that Israel appears appears to have demonstrated. And assuming that when we saw Russia tinkering around in ICS systems and things like that, that meant that that this was not a opportunistic attack, but an appetite for sort of a deep capability in this area. And maybe that's not true. And and I don't want to say that it's not because they couldn't do that. Maybe just pragmatically, they were looking for investing in cyber capabilities that had immediate returns on their investment. Because if you think about these kind of deep investments, and I'm going to be able to own everything and you know, compromise all sorts of and control systems and things like that. Those are mostly mostly capabilities you're never going to use. Or if we look look at we know about Russian capabilities, they're often dual use and could be used, you know, for offensive actions as well as intelligence. But there there's always a fairly short return on investment in the things that have been turned around. And so my takeaway is that we have to ask the question: Is that the kind of capability that Russia has? Is their military capability? very much um, a more polished version of the kind of capability we see in the cybercrime industry.
2: Yeah. I mean, if I can jump in there as well, I think that there's uh, some real interesting, uh, if you take a kind of zoomed out look to build on what Jonathan just said, uh, they're using cell phones to coordinate and map. Like they're, they're literally using Google maps to coordinate and manage land navigation of armored columns along with sending texts to each other for uh C three. Okay. Oh, oh Matt,
1: it's even it's even worse to that. They're using off the shelf Chinese two-way radios without without an analog to communicate amongst their column. And these are just things that you can pick up with a good antenna oh, anywhere yeah. in
2: Europe. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, and so there's an
1: OSN community listening to doing signals intelligence against the Russian column. Right?
2: Yeah. And this is just like uh, the, the whole, uh, you know, the, the term that really kind kind of uh, comes to mind about their state of preparation and state uh, readiness, whether it's offensive cyber or defensive cyber or even uh, as we're they're blowing their truck tires out because they haven't uh, literally turned the wheels over. So there's dry rot on the tires. Uh, it's clown shoes,
1: and they're using Chinese knockoffs of expensive German tires.
2: Yeah, and when you, if you have a uh, coming back to the tires, just a quick aside, like if you have a truck that has a variable uh, inflation air compressor system built in like you might want on a military truck that has to go on roads or has to go off-road. And this is the mud season in Ukraine. You need to actually like flex those tires a bit and make sure to turn the truck around. So it's not always the same tires in the sun. And if you're looking at just these backed up columns on roads, when there's clear open fields that they could run through on either side, it's because they're going to blow their tires. And you can kind of that's a great analogy for where Russia is otherwise in the uh, uh, ComSec and cyber realms. Uh, well,
1: I think, I, I, I think we do want to separate out those a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm. there's, there's how well did they intend to prepare their, themselves for this invasion? How much was ill-prepared potentially because of uh, the effects of a kleptocracy where people are siphoning money off that was meant to supply the troops. You know, we've seen all sorts of things from, you know, potentially shortages of rations to MREs that expired 10 years ago to, you know, uh, all, all sorts of issues with their their supply chain and logistics. And and there's a lot of these in that. But I think there's also, I think, the difference is, I think that we believe they have been making strategic investments in cyber that they were not. That they were their yeah. investments in cyber were different. And it's not just about, you know, were they prepared? Did, did they think that Ukraine was going to be pushovers like they were in Crimea? You know, there's all these sort of questions. Uh, you know, what is, is there basically fraud that happened that meant that they were not as prepared as they believed they were? Uh, there's all those questions. But I think fundamentally, I think the very the really interesting question to me in the context of cyber is. Have we miscalculated where they put their investments and maybe their investments? are a lot less interesting than we had presumed And yeah maybe we see maybe what we see with all with all the uh, successes of the Russian Apts is not as much that they were they have these deep skills and can take whatever target they want, but that they are a very skilled group but with a limited depth in their ability. That actually was winning targets somewhat opportunistically, doing a fairly good job once they won them, but they didn't have like the a deep O day well that would let them walk into places that they had yeah. good engineering, but not necessarily great exploit development and knowledge about the systems they were attacking. I, yeah. I don't know that to be true, but I think it's a real thing to consider, and and, I, and I, really consider I about right. how we think about think about our posture of how we. We posture ourselves against Russia going forward, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. And coming back to your earlier analysis of, well, we looked at our capabilities and wondered if they had them. Uh, I, I don't think that's entirely wrong to worry about, well, if we're doing this, surely they are too, right? But. Uh, well, and,
1: and I mean, and more, we've seen them on SCADA networks, we've right. seen them in, in the Ukraine cutting power. On other industrial control networks in other parts of the world. We know that they have an active interest in this, but maybe that's a skunkworks thing and not an active program.
0: Yeah. Or,
2: you know, the, there's a, uh, across the world, there is a long and cherished history of underinvestment in cybersecurity practice. And, uh, you know, maybe it's not so much they were super advanced, but the rest of the world was just lagging so much in defense.
1: Certainly a, a possibility.
2: But you know, I think uh, coming up to the uh, support of this, I think this is the really the first time we're seeing uh, folks trying to be gloves, some amount of gloves off in cyber war in support of actual war. This isn't uh, like we saw a bit of that in the 2014 invasion, uh, but. Again, the you know the Ukrainian military was not putting up as much resistance at that point as they certainly are now.
1: Well, I think I think the the interesting parallel to make is the last minute averted uh, bombing of Iran under the Trump administration, where the you know, we said, Well, we changed our mind and we took a cyber action instead. Um but where the uh, popular analysis is in fact that that cyber action wasn't, and instead that was a forward action to protect our aircraft. And as reported, and again, I have you know only public reporting, which which isn't very deep on this, um, is that essentially what happened is the entire Iraqi, or not Iraqi, sorry, Iranian um, air defense system was completely taken offline with a cyber attack, right? Super appropriate if we were going to fly planes in there. Um, uh, and and again, very u- tactically useful, but I think that shows a really distinct capability, right? Mm-hmm. The internet is still up in the Ukraine. If Russia really had capabilities, I see no strategic reason for them not to just yeah. take out all comms in the Ukraine when they started rolling in, you know, to isolate, you know, isolate the troops that were out there. I mean, that may or may not have worked because it turns out the Ukraine seems to have a fairly good dispersed defensive fighting force but mm-hmm. that's not what it all happened and then, then when we move into other regimes it's allowed the ukraine to win the information war right that mm-hmm. ukraine is killing it on social media right between their president st- you know posing for pictures in the street you know it, with a machine gun and saying i'm going to stay here to talking in front of the un on zoom and saying this may be the last time I talk to you. Please help my country, you know, to, you know, all sorts of memes And and also we see really distinctly lots and lots of imagery of destroyed Russian equipment and damage to Ukrainian civilian stuff and a very little information about damage to Ukrainian equipment. Some certainly gets out, but not it's not at the same level. Um,
2: yeah. And we've seen. So I think, uh, yeah, sorry.
1: Oh, I see. But it's an interesting contrast to 2016, where Russia had a very successful sustained information war campaign against the U.S. And we Mm -hmm. haven't seen that kind of success. And I don't think that's because they haven't tried. Honestly, the general feeling in the community seems to be that actually by this point, finally, the, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Google and YouTube have kind of got their game together and is being quite effective at collaborating with each other. And routing out these information ops um, ahead of them becoming very effective.
2: Yeah, certainly. And I mean, it's I mean, speaking about to, you know, information is part of the cyber arena as a uh, broad concept. Uh, watching hashtags just start to drop out of sight as platforms get far more aggressive, deplatforming Russian information operations. We've seen uh, uh, like. Uh, posts around the trucker convoys just kind of disappearing as those Russian accounts get banned. Uh, And it's really just less energetic, less capable attempts at pushing uh, information agendas. And at some point, popular opinion takes over. And when you have an actual somebody who understands how to talk to people and work with people, as the president of the country being invaded,
0: uh, that's useful. That's a a powerful image. That's a powerful uh, thing. Was Ukraine farther along than we thought in IT generally? I mean, is there some reservoir of programmers and savvy tech people that we didn't really think was there in in Eastern Europe? We
1: we knew that Ukraine actually had a lot of capability, Mm right? I mean, Ukraine has a fairly advanced, I mean, lots of things like, Ukraine was part of Russia. Russia had a great technical education program historically. You know, Ukrainians have a, lo- a lot of skills and capabilities. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I don't think they lack that. They maybe lack some of the deeper expertise and broad expertise being a smaller country that a country of our size has just because of depth of the pool, right? You know, we have 300 million people to draw on. Some of those are going to be incredibly excellent at cyber. You know, just if if it's a bell curve, right? You need to get those people outside of three sigmas and what's the probability you have one? You know? So so I think it's I I I don't think we underestimate it. I think one of the things we also maybe one of the, the a, a potential question to ask that some people are certainly posing out there is there is a popular opinion that defense is unwinnable in cyber. Right? That the adversaries will get in if they want to right? if They wanted enough. And, you know, is that actually true for a well-managed organization? Right? It, it, that may be true if you go to any unprepared company and say, now, I want you to prepare to evict all adversaries. That may be a very long road to get from there to security. But if you're afraid of Russia invading and you've been, you've been living life as the cyber proving ground of Russia for the last eight years, Maybe you get really good at cyber defense, and maybe you can repel, you know, significant portions of a very, a very motivated adversaries.
2: Look at the, uh, look at the DDoS attack on Biasat. Uh You know that's a direct cyber action in support of basically maneuver warfare, right? And it was kind of this Kludgeon DDoS sort of uh, blunt force attack rather than like actually breaking into biostat network to try and make the Ukraine go dark. Uh, it, it wasn't very it, it wasn't at the same level as where we've been worried about and been like doomsday scenario uh, type worries. It's kind of a broad blunt attack that they came back up and re, you know they're Working around it and things are fine.
1: Yeah. And I wonder too, like, you know, there's been now uh, a ringing of hands that any moment Russia is going to take revenge on the West by unleashing a vast cyber attack against Western institutions. And I wonder if if that's not actually true. Maybe they don't have those capabilities. Maybe all the easy to win targets have already been won by the ransomware criminals and that, that. Ransomware has done us a favor by, you know, uh, by flattening the curve of exploit, right? Uh, so that we can't, there's, we're not going to be able to see this big spike of compromise. We're, we're, we're seeing this mm-hmm. drawn out, painful, terrible compromises that have real impacts, but that by by the constant churn of the cyber criminal and ransomware, we, you know, we're sort of knocking down... Uh, we're knocking people down, you know, weekly instead of all of them in a. You know, imagine like the, what would be the impact if every ransomware attack that happened over the last twelve months happened in one day? That would be a big deal, right? Because there are literally ones every day, right? You'd be talking about thousands of compromises. But so, so maybe actually, the, the you know Russia needs to do a little bit more deconfliction between their offensive military capabilities and their criminals.
2: Yes. Yeah i think everyone would be a little bit happier with that too and uh I mean you know coming back to like you know, look at the colonial pipeline hack that uh stunted gas uh, deliveries are on the east coast the ot network didn't get broken the company voluntarily turned off service because its it billing system was uh uh ransomware and i i don't believe that in an actual like Real hard situation, somebody wouldn't come in and say, okay, you're going to turn the uh, pumps back on and we'll just figure out how to make it right at some point afterwards. Like, yeah. They, well, I wanna,
1: mm-hmm. Go on. Go on. Oh, it, you said
2: it. Yeah. It was just like they, uh, it was a open opener system. They didn't get into the OT as far as anyone can tell. And Ultimately, it's something that we could have gotten around had it happened at a critical time.
0: And the the chairman said they had a really complex password. It was a mystery why why it happened. (laughs) (laughs) But also, to Jonathan's
2: point, they now have a CISO. I mean, yes, shame on them for not having had like a CISO before, but now they have one. Now they have a real security practice. And I'm sure there's plenty of other organizations that got scared into leveling up with every single attack.
1: Well, I, I want to take this question a different place, uh, This this topic, a different place that's related, which is, you know, I think when you look at the area of civilian strikes on targets, you'll get denying comms activity and you look at uh, information warfare. We now see, you know, social media is a is a domain of cyber conflict. I want to ask. Is the Swift system also a domain of cyber contact? uh, Conflict. Now, and that's a domain where we are winning because we control it. And where does the line between sanction and cyber war actually even exist? Right? Because it's in the physical realm, it's really easy. If you're not shooting bullets, it's not war, right? But once we start manipulating the information systems, we start manipulating the information sphere and we get into there, right? We, instead we think of cyber as a space, we think of it the way that the Russians and Chinese think about it as the, the information sphere. Why is one manipulation clearly distinct than the other? And if we say, well, it's because of outcome, then wouldn't we say something we knew was going to have a crippling effect on the entire nation, both civilian and government? Why is that not just as much a military action as a wiper software? Like, why is that not cyber war?
0: Right. That's the distinction of, um, you know, if it's electronic and finance is electronic. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting you brought up SWIFT, um, which is, you know, as people know, Belgian-based mechanism for cross-border financial transactions. If you send a wire to your aunt in Mexico, well, actually, that might not be SWIFT. That might use some crazy old thing that Western Union has. But uh, let's say something, if you're um, sending something to a bank or uh, something in Europe, you're using SWIFT. Um, But it's not that high tech. I mean, the security might be might be advanced, but it's basically the successor of a telex. It's something that people agree as an authoritative information mechanism of saying Johnny has 100 bucks less than you have his 100 bucks. And and we all agree that that's the truth. And in that when that's reflected in your accounts, it's legitimate. Uh, And in fact, China and Russia do have alternatives to this. They're little used, although they may become more used out of necessity right now. Uh, And that's this question of using some of these tools uh, in this war. If in fact we're going to prompt China and Russia, in particular, to create alternatives, can you address that from the tech angle? Um, Is you know Russia we don't think of as being as integrated into U.S. IT as, for example, China. But um, if we're ripping apart our finance systems here, and you know the effect of what the U.S. did, uh, essentially impounding, seizing the foreign held dollars that Russia's central bank had, billions and billions of dollars. Um, you know, if we have the separation in finance, do you expect some separation in technology that hasn't occurred already? I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting question. And you know, taking a look at SWIFT,
2: like what is Swift? It's to vastly oversimplify, like you said, telex, it's basically a text messaging widget. Yeah. Right. It's basically like and, SMS. Yeah. It's then <laughs> it has a transaction rate of about 160 messages a second. And I mean, some of our listeners with teenagers might note that uh, their teenager can keep up at least that on their own. So the, like that it's, it's not a, it's not the only way for anything to happen. Like a bank could just pick up a phone and call another bank and send the exchange of the same information that well, Swift helps automate and manage.
1: I mean, yes and no, but right, Swift solved two major problems of the pre-existing sort of a telex-based system, right? It solved, it had built-in identity and authentication, um, and it had a standardization of the messaging format. So what the two problems of the previous system is, well, it was like eight characters a second, so it was slow and you had to, and and it was just people typing in language saying, hey, Hey, Susie, or Tom, please transfer this much money into this account. You know, Joe is sending it to, to Sally, right? And, you know, so there was no formalization. And so sometimes you needed to have back and forth exchanges. It couldn't be automated. There, the, there, the authentication was like some sort of hand, hand calculated uh, authentication mechanism. I haven't actually looked into what it is, but there was some sort of authenticator that had to be computed by hand. And so they said, OK, we're going to have strong identities. We're going to have strong formats and protocols. so Everybody knows what everything means. And so, yeah, you could just call up the bank, but it doesn't scale. What SWIFT did is scale, right. Right? right. And then Understood. there are. And, there, and yeah, so, so I, I don't think, yeah, you could do a transfer, but you can't enable the kind of free flow of currency and money that right. the, the current global economies depend on. And there are mm-hmm. other settlement systems. Right. Right. And there, there are exactly. there. And
2: exactly. And that's that's the thing when you cut them out of Swift. Uh, the the thing that Swift has is a network effect. It's like why is everyone still on Facebook even though everyone hates Facebook? <laughs> like I, I don't. I you know I'm I'm not on it anymore, but I, I know pe- a ton of people who still are, and they've got nothing positive to say about it. But they're still on it. Why? Because that's where everyone else is there, grumbling about how much they hate Facebook.
1: Well, I think and
2: this. Go on. And so when you're talking about bank, banking systems, if China and uh, Russia set up their own cool autocrat club uh, money transfer system, that's great. Now, uh, now China can get access to all the rubles that they never wanted in the first place. Uh, it's got to operate with the rest of the world. And that's where the biggest uh, hurdle I see as uh, the cool autocrat currency club uh failing. Yeah, I mean and, and and
1: I think there's some really deep questions about society and global you know governance embedded in here. Like you definitely see a lot of people in you know like the crypto community saying, ha, ah, finally cryptocurrency is going to take over the world because everybody sees what a sham the international banking system is. And that you know you can't trust you can't trust banks in the banking system. But, you know, do we want this? What do we want as a society? Do we want a system where we can take these kinds of measures, where we can cut people out at sale, you know, wholesale? Is, is that good or bad? I, I think that's, it's an interesting question that I think is beyond the scope of, of this conversation. <laughs> uh, I know Matt thinks it's good. I, I don't even know the answer to that question. I mean, certainly it's good to have non-kinetic means to engage with another country.
0: Well, that does bring up one geopolitical question that might be pertinent here, which is, so as the United States, we should, yeah, having that power is something. It's not just us versus Russia and China. Interestingly, uh, in the UN Security Council, when there was the first vote to condemn, uh, India abstained, and so did the United Arab Emirates. Saudi Arabia is not currently on the Security Council. Um, Then along comes the General Assembly vote. I didn't look line by line, but I assume it was similar where India probably abstained. Um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, other Gulfies. These are uh, people with some financial wherewithal. And even if there are allies or just sort of uh, nominal, India was not aligned, not an ally of the United States, a little closer to Russia, not technically a Soviet ally during the Cold War, gravitated a little bit in our direction. But um, the sense that it should just that it's one thing for these things to exist, but for them to be under the sort of unilateral control of Washington is another Another problem. Well,
1: I think I think it is it isn't, it isn't actually under the control of
0: Washington, though, right? We we have an un, un. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sort of conflating the dollar with Swift. Yeah. So we can yeah. kick people out of the dollar and say your bank cannot transact dollars, which is sort of a death sentence. Although we may <laughs> we may be proven wrong here. But then Swift, yeah, we do need the Europeans to go along. Yeah, yeah. and I think, uh, and the,
2: for the Europeans to go along, uh, getting European consensus on anything is like. I think we've seen uh, a just unbroken string of miracles in the last week. Watching the Europeans come to consensus on not just one, but you know, a number of topics in a row, which is just mind blowing, right? Uh, and you know, any one country deciding let's kick Russia out of SWIFT, okay, that's that that would have gone somewhere and landed. But uh, with the EU acting as a coherent Block on its own that and America. It's still uh, you know the way that Swift is and who participates. Everyone everyone participates in Swift, right? But it's uh, given the concentration location of the banks, it's largely uh, U.S. and Europe uh, denying access to their economies by Russian banks, uh, which you know, coming back to there's ways to transact uh, and ways to get other, there are other payment settlement systems. Uh, so I think it's, in this case, it's more just well, like, yeah, you th- can be, th- a country can say who gets to play there.
1: There are other payment settlement systems, but none that are really effective, right? I mean, there's, there's one that the user- Facebook.
0: Prefer the, uh, the, the suitcase full of 500 euro notes, metal suitcase, shiny. As opposed yeah. to, <laughs> Well, I, I, I think never... it's,
1: it's also interesting to see how, you know, how politics it has in the last year really encroached, encroached on the information world in a way that it hadn't. Like, this is the second banning of Swift ever. Right. So no matter what countries have done in the past, we've, uh, you know, Swift has pushed to say, hey, we really want to be neutral. We don't want to be, you know, Consider, you know, we don't want to be considered to be a political body, you know. Um, uh, And the first time that it was ever done was on a wrong against Iran, you know, and now we've done it to Russia as well. And so it can technology be maintain an apolitical status. And I think what we really see is just no, you know, is that technology exists to exert the political will. And I think that has very deep implications about thinking about cybersecurity. Right? Because it goes beyond it goes beyond like, well, if you know, that's that is well is that also true of Windows, right? You know, and I can't see how it's not in the end game. And that comes back to your question of, you know, are people gonna develop native technology? And I think that this is something that has I, I I believe is going to happen for a very long time. As we move back towards peer competition, that we're really going to see a balkanization of technology because the complexity of these systems is so high and our ability to implement isolation and control inside the systems is currently so minimal that how could you ever actually trust a chip produced in China, right? How could you trust software Produced in the U.S. If you're in China, you know that, and you know, and we see we've seen the danger. Like we've seen it from interdiction, where oh, you, you even just shipping through a adversary controlled region might mean you get something backdoored, even if it didn't come from that from the factory. To Crypto AG, which was actually started by I believe started or at least compromised completely by CIA and German intelligence, and then later just the CIA. Right. Crypto AG, um, for those that don't know, is a company in Switzerland that sells uh, government grade uh, encryption hardware, like something you'd put on a lease line so that your embassy uh, can securely talk to, you know, your nation state back home. Um, and they always advertise that, well, we're, we're Swiss, so we're neutral and you can trust us. But they are also compromised by the CIA. Um, and. That all and that if you bought their equipment, it was backdoored, and we could the CIA could decode decrypt everything that was sent over it. I mean, maybe they gave the keys to the nSA. I don't know how the operation ran, but that's that's well documented in the press
0: Wow, well, you know, further to that point um at least with with the the separation of technology into islands or different spheres, whatever you want to call it, so some of the sanctions imply uh, imposed to actually prevent technology that could be used for defense from going to russia and that that could be broadly construed to include iPhones windows things like that i think you know i remember working on north korea issues at the state department there was some concern originally about taking windows computers into north korea when talks were going on and we actually had a few guys who were hanging out at the hotel there and they had to get some license um and it's unclear i mean still early days in this to know frankly i think the impact on energy markets may have actually exceeded what the administration had hoped for, they intentionally wanted to exempt that. And currently, no one is taking new uh, deliveries, or at least purchasing new deliveries of Russian oil, which probably can't last. Um, But with technology, I mean, so do you think it will be a world where it's the United States and Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, importantly, especially if we're talking semiconductors, and then Russia, China, and then others like the Middle East and India are on some separate island, just opportunistically dipping in. Uh, and if that is the case, as Russia and China, we sort of think of even China being more sophisticated, yet farther behind us, especially with export controls on uh, semiconductor fabs or, or uh, tools that are less than five yeah. nanometers. I forget what the specs are. What do you think? Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, they are, they now claim to have a, uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography process. It's not clear that it actually is useful commercially, um, but they, you know, lithography, they understand a huge weakness of theirs is lithography.
0: The Chinese <laughs> or the Russians?
1: The Chinese, the Chinese. <laughs> um, and, you know, they know they have a big problem, you know, but they also have, they have the Made in China 2025 plan, which is they want to be able to domestically produce all the technology that they depend on by 2025. You know, and they're very active Actively moving towards that, and they, you know, they, we've already kind of lost the first wave of fighting that campaign if it's something we want to fight because we already they, they already sent sent enough students here and hired away enough people back to China um, that were either some of them are U.S. citizens, some of them weren't, or some of them were in U.S. citizens in China, and uh, that they now have their own research uni- universities and they're able to now domestically create create a lot of their own technology. I mean, we are trying really hard. Like, you can't sell the optics required for advanced lithography to China. You can't sell the light sources for advanced lithography to China, or of course the lithographic machines. So, so, and, that, and that's that's really a huge deal because you know, information processing is clearly one of the major assets of tomorrow, right? You know, the if you want, if you believe that that AI is going to play an important part of the future, you need access to advanced um Computers to do that training, like AI. The AI approach we're taking today is great, and it's very cheap to use. But building the AI systems requires incredibly massive supercomputers to train these models that we're using today. Uh, and there's a lot of research done into that, you know. And and the the biggest tech companies in the US are all building their own custom supercomputers that are not publicly available. Google has has their their big what their TensorFlow machine. I forget the the mm-hmm. their, that's like. You know, 2,000 units and you know a terabytes, petabytes of memory. I forget what it is in a highly <laughs> connected bus. Uh, Tesla has been working on their Dojo with a unique architecture. Facebook's got their own architecture. Everybody's building these custom computers to build mega training computers. And if you don't have access to that technology, you're going to be left behind in at least that realm. And it's also going to affect. And since that realm is now bleeding to everything else, it's going to affect your ability to do. Um, computational uh, chemistry and which affects your ability to develop drugs. It's going to affect your ability to do uh, uh, computational like simulations for aerodynamics. It's certainly, if you have a uh, nuclear weapons program, you know, the way to advance nuclear weapons today is through simulation. You know, I mean, obviously <laughs> if we survive this without nuclear war, we should be <laughs> trying to do disarmament. Like, I mean, it's incredibly terrifying to, that this could lead to nuclear escalation, right? But but coming back to that balkanization, like, yeah, it's gonna be really interesting to see how it plays out. And I think the really the places if we want to deny other countries access to those things, if that is something that's appropriate and we want to do, I think almost has to be focused on the physical technology and not the information technology itself. Because the great distinguisher about cyber tech you know stuff or information technology in general versus traditional technology is that proliferation happens very quickly because you do not need an industrial base to develop or use software technology as soon as you get access to the to the technology you can start manufacturing it you can start modifying it you can start using it right like if I steal, if I steal a cyber implant, I can de- deploy that as many times as I want. I can modify it and use it in different ways. You know, if it's a cyber weapon, same thing. If I steal a tank, I have one tank. I can modify it to be something different, but then I only still have one, right? To get multiple mm-hmm. tanks, I need to build up the entire complex industrial supply chain that can produce tanks. That's very different in software. So I think when you think of this balkanization it's really going to happen around the hardware and not the software right well the, well, the balkanization will happen but the capabilities will be fairly equal I think software is the great equalizer in that everybody can get access to it and knowledge we've sh- China has shown you can get access to that too it's more work but you can get it so the the balkanization I think is going to be more driven around the hardware to do that stuff
2: on this uh... As uh, you've been talking about that, the thing that comes to my mind is if you look at the the legalization of cryptography over uh, its history, uh, it used to be the realm of the NSA to have strong crypto, and that was stuff got uh, stuff was classified up until the Soviet Union fell, and it was decided that uh, providing technology to enable Global economy uh, was the more important thing, and that started okay. opening up and be more. Oh, well,
1: I want to push back against that analysis because I think honestly, the fifty-six bit uh, or sixty-bit encryption limit that was mm-hmm. existed actually enabled the global economy. I think it was the acceptance that we had lost our our, our dominance in cryptography, and that civilian cryptography world that advanced to the point where it was just kind of silly and, and actually was hurting, it was actually hurting our ability to export products, not so much that we wanted to okay. make other people secure. And if you and if you want like an example, like a, AES, which replaced DES, that candidate came out of Europe, right? That was yeah. not a domestically invented algorithm, right? So in fact, you know, our standard symmetric encryption algorithm, uh, and actually true, SHA-3, one of the selected candidates is European right? So Mm -hmm. we no longer hold the monopoly on the ability to create strong cryptography. And I think the change in export controls was more just an acceptance of that and and motivating to take the handcuffs off of domestic industry businesses, so they could at least compete globally. And that might actually have a more beneficial effect, because we control the supply chain. And, you know, as we've seen, controlling the supply chain means controlling the security.
2: Oh sure, and I, I'm uh, I'm coming back to though, and I I understand I I don't disagree with you, but if you think about uh, coming back to where, uh, and I also agree on the physical stuff because also you need to run your advanced algorithms AI algorithms on something. Like at some point, who cares if you have the copy of the source code if you can't run it? Uh but I. Uh, I'm wondering if this will start seeing governments around the world start to get a little bit more angsty and anxious about uh, information, the flow of information as well. Uh, because, to, you know, to your point on universities, uh, folks come to the United States from around the world, and they go right back to their homes uh, after they're done, after they get their uh, degrees, with all that information, with all that knowledge of. Of stuff that is like the the stuff to do the advanced lithography i would like of course that's got uh, foreign grad students working there they're a huge contribution to the us academic output and part of the global academic community and they're back home they know how to make this stuff well they don't wait, wait. you don't have the whole uh supply chain but we've also been really good at our our industry American industry has been really good at helping over the last what forty years, a thriving electronics industrial supply chain going in China,
1: but I think that's actually another point where this is actually a, a this is not a decision the U.S. can make, right? Yeah. We don't actually control advanced lithography. That all happens in Europe. Like yep. what is it? Uh, now forgetting the, the the name of the company because it's a, a AMSR, I believe it is, um, mm-hmm. makes the the most advanced lithographic machines. They developed their light source. Um, you know, it's, it's like amazing technology. You need to get these extreme ultraviolets. You drop a bead of nickel. You hit it with a laser to get it hot. And then you hit another laser to vaporize it. And the vaporizing creates the extreme ultraviolet light. And you do that continuously dropping beads to do this. Like The, the technology to do this is so sci-fi and crazy. Like, Why would you do that? Right. You know, and and all sorts of things. But then all the optics tend to be produced by Carl Zeiss, Right. So Mm -hmm. we don't have a monopoly. The West has monopoly, but the U.S. doesn't. Yeah.
2: And I, I mean, in this, I also I'm taking a I don't think it is a terribly large leap to assume that the EU and the U.S. might continue to operate. And my larger leap is assuming like just what if europe sticks together more tightly as a result of this uh and so then like just the sphere this is the u s and e u sphere uh which in french because it's it has uni and oh uh, uh, anyway uh but uh so uh, oh, yeah like i i imagine cooperation in that sphere but uh Kind of think of that as sphere, and then China and then Russia as three separate spheres with maybe some uh, additional uh, sub spheres on there. But the boxes. What you're saying is to think
0: is. inside the box, right? That's what you're saying. <laughs> but
1: you know, but I think, like taking it all the way back, the challenge is that information technology and and, and software is the ultimate dual use technology right? Because what is a computer? A computer is a perfectly generic information processing machine, right? And what is, and if you're training a neural net, are you training a neural net to um, you know cure cancer? Or are you training a neural net to drive a car? or are you training a neural net to uh, do automatic surveillance of your popula you know of a local populace so you can suppress them? It's exactly the same hardware. And just different objective functions for the software. It's even kind of the same software, and you're just say, setting the dial between you know what what flavor of output you want. Do I do I want authoritarian output or do I want you know Q, you know save humanity output, right? And it, but it's the same software architectures. It's the same hardware systems exactly. So how do we think about that in terms of? proliferation. Like so we might from a security standpoint need to balkanize because of supply chains. But then from a sharing standpoint of I of, of ideas and technology, is it appropriate to deny access to advanced you know, compute capabilities for AI because we're unhappy about how say China is using, you know, developing a digital panopticon uh, against the, the Uyghur population. Um, but also, it'll be used domestically to cure cancer. Like, what's the right choice? I don't know.
2: And right now, the academic world is so intertwined. And it, so after having come from the academic world myself, I I like that, right? Uh, the, there's a rich pool of ideas to solve the world's big problems. But a te- technological balkanization, I... Um, that gets into more interesting, uh, more interesting cases. Like uh, the U.S. developed stealth technology out of a paper on uh, radar reflectivity written by a Russian, mm-hmm. and the comments were that uh, the only reason why the Russians allowed it to be published in an open journal is because it was so dry and boring that the security <laughs> reviewer couldn't get through it enough to understand the implications. Um, but that's a sort of uh, that sort of you know, and that's talking about the physical world, but to Jonathan's point, I'm like developing advanced systems, software and hardware to be able to have this ultimate dual use technology, like where that's that's a interesting new world. This isn't, you know, computing being developed during the Cold War and having established norms. Now, the Cold War ended, We plugged everybody into the same network and shared everything. And now what do we do?
1: Yeah. And and how do we, and pulling it back to cyber, should we share threat intelligence globally? Should we share CEVs globally? Right? If we do balkanize technology, do we we keep private inside our regime uh, information about, uh, you know, exploitation and uh, vulnerabilities? Uh, so that we have, a you know, try to develop asymmetric capabilities, or do we do we try and share things more broadly so that, you know, we can, you know, raise humanity and make a better world for everybody?
0: Interesting. Well, you know, one anecdote that comes to mind was when World War II started, the way the Germans and the Soviets knew that we were working on an atomic bomb along with the Brits and the Canadians is that there was this broad field of uh, publication over fission, nuclear science, what we were discovering about the atom, radiation, and then it all went silent. (laughs) Uh, So not sharing, but the silence was what spurred uh, concern on the other side. Mm Maybe We should leave it there. Uh, This war probably will not end rapidly, unfortunately, and I'll bet the cyber element continues. So perhaps we should continue the discussion next time. Thank you, Jonathan Moore, Chief Technology Officer at Spider Oak, and Matt Erickson, Vice President of Solutions at Spider Oak. I'm Christian Whiten. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our channel, leave us a comment on Apple, and we'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks.